Grace and mercy and peace be to you from God, our Father, and our Lord, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm wondering how many of you actually believe that they still turn water into wine. I wondered about that. I stepped into Walmart a couple weeks ago, and I walked into one section. I saw a big sign that said water. And that's normally where you find those big cases of water, of Ozarka or whatever. But when I walked down that aisle, it was wine. And I thought, goodness sakes, Jesus has been to Walmart. <laughs> but you don't see that very ha- often. Our text this morning, though, talks about Jesus turning water into wine. And uh, you, you follow along either on the screen or up on the back of your worship folder this story from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. It says, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Quite the story. So here in John chapter 2, we have the account of Jesus' very first miracle. The scene has shifted from Judea, where John the Baptist was baptizing uh, in the Jordan, to about 70 miles north of that place, uh, this area of Cana in Galilee. And no doubt Jesus and his disciples, since they probably would have been at Bethany beyond the Jordan, just continued up the Jordan and crossed over. It took about two days to walk. It does say that on the third day, there was a marriage in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus, that's Mary, was there, and it also appears that Jesus himself had been invited. And when the wine gave out, his mother says, (coughs) they have no wine. And of course, Jesus has those classic words, woman, what have you to do with me? Sounds a little bit insensitive, but we'll get to that. My hour has not yet come, and she kind of nods her head and walks away and says to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Now, in studying this text, there's all kinds of ways to go with it. Uh, One of the first things I saw, though, was it said the third day. And I think it's rather significant that John mentions the third day. He's referring to the third day after Jesus left Judea. He had a two-day walk up to Galilee and would have arrived on what would have been the morning or around noon of the third day. One of the things you need to remember about the Gospel of John is that he wrote his Gospel much later than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
probably 30 to 40 years after the events of Jesus took place. Uh, by then, he probably had the time and the opportunity to review very carefully all of the events that he had been teaching and preaching about for all that time and was selecting from his memory as the Holy Spirit was moving him these very important things that he ought to stress. So when you read the Gospel of John, as you really should do for the whole Bible, uh, it's particularly there for a reason. Now, what is the reason for mentioning the third day? Well, I think the mention of the third day is a reference to what is evident elsewhere in God's word. It's a reference to the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus, of course, had not yet taken place. Uh, but even the Old Testament prophecies, there is a reference to the third day as being the day in which Israel would be spiritually healed and returned to the Lord. Those of you that have been in Bible class and we studied Hosea, you go back and read Hosea chapter 6, verse 2. And he does say there will come a day when Israel is returned and Israel is restored. Now, there's something else. I'm just going to kind of mention this in fast, and this is kind of like bonus teaching. But I thought on the third day, I wonder if there were other days. And actually, if you go back and you track from John chapter 1, verse 1, literally he changed the water into wine on the seventh day. The very first day was John chapter 1, verse 1. You go right down. On the seventh day, water turned into wine. And I suppose you could kind of make a case for creation. That on the seventh day, God rested. Now, you say, well, God rested by making water into wine. No, I think the very fact that he used the water from the pots that were for purification was kind of Jesus saying, you no longer need to do that. You can rest from this, because now the one who really purifies you, the real water of life, is here. But that's just kind of an aside. Let me tell you a little bit about Eastern weddings, the wedding that Jesus would have been at. Eastern weddings are very different than uh, the Western weddings that you and I are so much accustomed to. In Western weddings, uh, the bride is the most prominent figure. Uh, when the bride enters, um, clad in all of her glory, uh, the whole congregation typically stands. You know, Mama stands up in the front pew and says, oh, everybody up, everybody up. And, and uh, the organ starts pounding out, uh, here comes the bride, or something like that. And every eye is focused on that bride as she comes waltzing down the aisle. But in Eastern weddings, it's the groom that is most prominent. He is the one who is most important. He is the featured one. The bride merely shows up. She's kind of like the bridegroom in a Western wedding, kind of a necessary evil. You've got to have him there, but not all that important. But not only is the, the groom the featured person, he also pays for the entire affair. And any of you who've had daughters probably wish that was still the way, that the groom would pay for the whole thing. Now, some of these weddings, if they were typically in a small village like Cana in Galilee, they lasted two or three days. But if you might have been in Jerusalem, a little bit bigger city, they would last for as long as a week with all of the relatives from both sides of the family joining together for a big celebration. Now, this is the kind of wedding that John is talking about, probably this small little two to three day gathering. Now, it's kind of interesting. Some commentators say that because Mary is featured so prominently in this very first story, it is somewhat likely that this was a wedding of one of Jesus' younger brothers or sisters. But there is a little complication mentioned in this story in that Jesus doesn't just show up. Jesus shows up with five bonus guests. 
Now, remember, he had just called some of his first disciples, five of them. And so the six of them had made this trip from Bethany beyond the Jordan, all the way from Judea up to Cana and Galilee. No one had sent ahead. No one had thought to text Mary. No one had thought of sending an email. Nobody had FaceTimed her. Nobody had posted on Facebook that there were extra people to come because Jesus was now coming with an entourage. But as is ordinarily true in these village settings, even as it is kind of in small-town America yet today, people don't really make a very big fuss about stuff like that. There's always time to put a little extra water in the soup and take care of any unexpected guests. So the disciples show up with Jesus, unexpected, but obviously are made very welcome when they show up. Now, if that's kind of true, this helps explain why the wine ran out. A two- or three-day celebration called for two or three days worth of wine, but when an additional five or six people show up, the wine kind of disappears pretty quick. It's at this point that Mary seizes the, the, the opportunity to say very significantly to Jesus, they have no wine. She doesn't ask him to do anything about it. She just says, they have no wine. Now, one commentary I read suggested that what she was saying to Jesus was that he and his disciples ought to leave. A gentle hint that they weren't invited and they're kind of ruining the marriage piece. I don't know whether that's true or not. Other commentators say that Mary did not, Jesus, did not expect Jesus to do any miracle because Jesus had done no miracles up to that point. Now, in spite of what you see on Facebook about how Jesus is walking across his bathwater at a baby and, and Mary is saying, okay, come on, cut it out, get in the water. I seriously doubt he did any miracles as a child. In spite of the fact that there are apocryphal books where they tell stories like how Jesus and his playmates were making clay birds out of, uh, birds out of clay and Jesus made his fly away and left the other ones just lay there. That's all kinds of nonsense. After all, what does it say here in our text? John says this was the first miracle that our Lord did. And yet, in spite of the fact, this account makes rather clear that Mary did expect Jesus to do something. She comes to him with a problem and expects him to take care of it. Now, personally, I think she kind of expected him to do something rather startling, uh, something almost supernatural. Uh, undoubtedly, she'd probably already heard the accounts of uh, what had happened in Judea where Jesus was being baptized by John and how the heavens opened up and the voice of God came down and the dove lighted on his shoulder and, and the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. I'm sure that she also remembered the promises when he was born, that he would be the Messiah. Remember in the Christmas story, so she kept all these things and she pondered them in her heart. I mean, no doubt, at some point in time, she fully expect Jesus to do something rather special or spectacular. And probably, along with the other Jews of that day, she expected him as the Messiah to claim David's throne, uh, to somehow drive out these evil, wicked, bad, nasty Romans, and, and to fulfill all of the Messianic pro prophecies. And by the way, some of the Messianic prophecies say that when the Messiah comes, there will be an abundance of wine. And some other prophecies say that when the Messiah comes, he will have power even over nature itself. So now that Jesus has taken the initiative, started calling his own disciples, she feels she probably has a right to expect that he's beginning to fulfill his destiny. My little boy has grown up. He's now going to be the Messiah. 
And this is kind of clearly understood by the statement Jesus makes. Jesus says, woman, what have you to do with me? Now, unfortunately, uh, there's no inflection or you know, any stage directions on how to say these things, because most of the time we hear that we kind of, we kind of picture Jesus looking and go, hey, woman, what do you expect me to do about it? And that's not at all what, the way it goes. The answer was not rude. The answer was not disrespectful, although it sounds that way to us only because pastors through the years have read it in that cranky fashion. But what Jesus was literally doing was using a common title of respect. You may remember, if you want to read the rest of the book of John, get to chapter 19, and Jesus is on the cross, how does he direct his, address his mother? Woman. Woman. Behold your son. I mean, it, it was a, a, a term of respect in those days. Now, when he says, what have you to do with me? This is kind of the Hebrew way of saying, Mom, you just don't understand yet. You just don't understand. Now, Jesus didn't say it wasn't going to do anything because we know he did something. He means what I do is not going to accomplish, perhaps, Mom, what you're hoping. I mean, what I'm going to about to do is not going to persuade the nation that I'm the Messiah. And she seems to be somewhat satisfied because she just goes to the servants and says, do whatever my boy tells you to do. I remember when I was working on uh, my MBA and my doctorate, predominantly with Catholics, uh, I pointed out to Catholic friends who often talked about asking Mary to intercede with Jesus, that really the only time Mary ever does intercede with Jesus, she ends up telling the men, do whatever he tells you to do. That sounded like pretty good advice. But as always, Jesus begins his miracles with whatever's at hand. I mean, sometimes he spits in the dirt and makes mud. Uh, but here he begins, he got six stone jars were standing there. Now, it's not clay jars because clay would absorb whatever is in the water. They had to be stoned because this was water that was used for the Jewish rites of purification. Each of them held somewhere between 20 to 30 gallons. And just notice the very simplicity of this, this account. Jesus simply says, fill the jars with water. So they fill them to the brim, 120 to 180 gallons of plain, pure water. And then Jesus says, take them to the guy in charge of the banquet. Draw out a little bit, let him taste it. Now, I'm kind of intrigued by the fact that there was no prayer said by Jesus. You know, come Lord Jesus, be our guest, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, there was no word of command. I command you in the name of myself uh, to turn into wine. There was no historical shouting. There was no pleading with some sort of a screwed up face toward heaven. He did not lay hands on anything. He did not bind Satan. There was no hocus pocus, no mumbo jumbo. Nothing. He didn't even touch the water for heaven's sakes. He didn't even taste it after it was done to see whether it was done. He simply said, take it to the governor of the feast. And that's kind of beautiful, simple dignity. And somewhere between him saying, taking it and it getting there, the water simply became wine. Yet this happened within the limits of a natural process. And I think it's very important for us to see that in this miracle. The water did not become milk. It didn't change into Dr. Pepper. What happened was something that also always happens in nature. I mean, right now, believe it or not, 
water is being changed into wine in practically every vineyard in Northern California. It involves a long process of growth, of gathering, of crushing. It involves the activity of men and the process of fermentation. So it's a natural process, and this is often the characteristic of the miracles of Jesus. It's kind of natural. You want to read a good book sometime, read another C.S. Lewis book. The book is called Miracles. And he's pointed out that every miracle of Jesus is simply kind of short-circuiting the natural process. It's doing instantly, which normal, something that normally takes a long period of time. This, this is one of his quotes. He said, each miracle writes for us in small letters something that God has already written or will write in letters almost too large to be noticed across the whole canvas of nature. So this is what Jesus is doing here. He's kind of overleaping the elements of time. He's overleaping the elements of growth and gathering and crushing and fermenting. He takes water, an inorganic, non-living, common substance, and without a word, without a gesture, without laying on the hands, water becomes wine. And it belongs to the realm of life. Now, I've had a few friends claim that Jesus did not change water into real wine. These are my Baptist friends. They say that he changed it into about 120 to 180 gallons of grape juice. Uh, Whenever they bring that up, I just smile at them because that claim is so ridiculous, it's not even worth arguing with them. They never, ever, at any point in time, even to this day, ever, ever, ever serve grape juice at Jewish weddings. They never have. They never will. In fact, if you read the New Testament, uh, we have warnings against the overuse of wine. We have clear indication that the wine of that day was very intoxicating. People had to watch it just as they need to do it today. Wine was a commonplace drink, one that believers partook of with everybody else in that culture and that climate. And the Lord certainly did change water into true, genuine, honest-to-goodness, great wine. Now, this is confirmed by who? Well, the text. The steward drank it. I mean, can't you just see him taking a little sip out of this, kind of swishing it around in his mouth, whatever wine tastes you do, that kind of stuff, and smelling it and drinking again and smacking his lips and saying, wow, this is Paul Masson, 1979. This is the best stuff I've ever drunk. And I have a picture, you know, on the side, the servants are just kind of going... Whoa, that was cool. See, the account even has hints of bewilderment of the bridegroom. When the steward tasted the water that was now wine and didn't know where it came from, but like I said, the, the, the servants who drawn the water knew where it came from, he calls the bridegroom over and he says, Hey, you know, every man, in other words, the guy who's paying for this, this feast is you, Every man serves the good wine first. Why? He says, because when men have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Now, it's interesting. We're not told what the bridegroom said. Uh, Evidently, he said nothing. Uh, He must have been probably as, as bewildered at this event as everybody else. But I think he was also smart enough to keep his mouth shut and, it, and, and uh, just kind of to take credit for the whole incident. He was probably thinking to himself, uh, yeah, we will serve no wine before it's time. But now the whole significance of this verse, uh, of this miracle, and we're getting to the point of this, and what's the significance of this miracle? It's recorded in that very first, in, in one verse, and it is in verse 11 of our text, 
And the verse says this, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So what do we need to kind of remember here? Well, the first thing we need to remember is that the miracle was a sign. In other words, it was an acted out parable. Kind of like what we read in Bible class about Hosea and taking Gomer as his wife. But it was an acted out parable. And signs are not merely miracles. Signs are miracles that actually have a meaning behind them. They are intended to convey truth that might otherwise not be known. Now, if some of you are lifelong Texans and have traveled around Texas long enough, you probably know that there is a battlefield outside of San Antonio, Texas, where uh, General Sam Houston defeated the Mexican army and won independence for Texas. Anybody know what's there by that battlefield of San Jacinto? There is a huge memorial tower. And with typical Texas modesty, there's a sign in front of it that says, this tower is 10 foot taller than the Washington Monument. Now, that's what signs are for, something like that. To tell you that, tell you something that otherwise was not known. It was to kind of give you some significance beyond what was hidden. And this is what John means when he says that this miracle was a sign. A sign of what? But what it really pictured was the normal outcome of a combination of human and divine activity. I mean, men can fill water jars. Only God can turn water into wine. Men can do the ordinary, the commonplace, the normal. But whenever God touches something, something comes to life. And God gives it flavor and fragrance and effect. See, this is an indication of what this whole ministry of Jesus was going to be like, that whenever he touched a human life, not only during his lifetime on earth, but also through centuries to come, whenever his ministry was present in this world, whatever his ministry touches, it changes. So it kind of affects us yet today. Bring God into your situation. I don't know what your situation but You bring him into that situation. And all of the humdrum, all of the commonplace activities are suddenly touched with a brand new power that makes changes. That brings kind of a fragrant, flavorful, enjoyable, delightful. It gives you joy and gladness of the heart. That's kind of the whole meaning of the sign. That when Jesus touches something, it always changes for the better. The second thing it says, it manifested his glory. Now, the, the obvious question would be, what is his glory? Well, if you go back and read all of John, if you read in John chapter 1, we are told what the glory of God is, the glory of God, which is the fullness of his grace and truth. That's his glory, grace and truth. Now, his grace is manifested in the fact that he showed up with five extra guests at the wedding. They had no gifts to bring, uh, so he kind of seizes on these six jars uh, that are waiting. <clears throat> this is why he had them filled to the brim with water, and then he changes the water into wine, giving one of the most generous gifts that anybody could ever give at a wedding. He gives this newly married couple that was about to suffer extreme embarrassment in this community a gift of the best wine. One jar for each of the unexpected guests. That's a gracious touch. That's the Lord's grace in this situation. But it comes with some truth also. Jesus manifested the truth about himself in this, that he truly was and is 
Lord over all. He's truly the Lord of nature. And I've already pointed out, he was merely carrying out a natural process in a very short period of time. Have you ever heard the term Mother Nature? You ever use that word, Mother Nature? You know, we humans have a kind of a, I don't know, a strange habit of ascribing the wonders of the natural world around us to some undefined power or force that we call Mother Nature or the big guy in the sky. But you know, to say that nature made it is saying that the tree made itself, which is utterly ridiculous. Now, we can see lakes and hills and woods and flowers and trees and animals, all the marvel of living, growing things. We see storms. We see the cycles of snow and rain. We see the stars swirling around the heavens, the moon full, not so full. We see the infinite marvel of life. And even scripture says people look at that and say, who did it? Who did it? Well, guess what? It's not nature. Nature didn't create itself. Rather, it was the mighty hand. It was the powerful arm. It was the mind and will of the God, of God, who is king of the universe. I mean, one day he stood quietly and with dignity and confidence and took water and quickly ran it through its natural course and it became wine. God's grace and the truth of who he really is was manifest. But even more important than that was it said that his disciples believed in him. They believed that here was God's man. Now, it doesn't really say prior to that time what they thought about it. They just thought when Jesus said, come follow me, they just kind of like, okay. But they were probably wondering, even on this two-day journey, what was all going on. They stood there and they watched the heavens open. They saw the dove come down. They heard the voice of God. This is God's son. Listen to him. I mean, who is this guy? I mean, they believed he was God's man, that he ruled over the works of God's hands. He put dominion and authority over the natural world, and he was doing with it whatever he pleased within the limits of nature. So that is the sign. That's the meaning of this miracle. When the disciples saw it, they believed more deeply in him than ever before. They saw him, even as we should, as the one who can handle life. He can handle any part of your life. I don't know what your life is like today, good, bad, ugly, or indifferent. Might be up, might be down. Who knows what your life is like? But he is the one who can handle your life. You, you, but you need to be, I guess, close enough to where he touches your life. He's the one who can take ordinary, simple water and make it wine. He's the one who can take ordinary, simple people and make it a source of joy and glory and warmth. See, that's the whole significance of this sign. Our Lord is able to take the humdrum, the commonplace, the ordinary, the normal events of any life, and with his touch, make them full of flavor and fragrance and strength and beauty and turn them into wonderful wine. And you know what the truly good news is in this story? It's not that there was a whole bunch of wine people partied on for days. That's not really the good news of this. The good news is that he can do this with any of us who trust and obey. He can do this with the most common of us if we will faithfully walk with him, follow him, and believe in him. That's why John highlights that last verse. There, the disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this look at this simple event on that day in Galilee. 
Help us to find in it meaning for our own lives, knowing that he who without a word, without any ostentation, transforms silently, quietly, with dignity, the water of that day into wine. So can he take the water of our commonplace lives and change it into wine, rich and full and tasty. We thank you for that and pray this may be the experience of all here in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and join together in an affirmation of uh, Christian faith. <clears throat> 